Welcome to the podcast of New Covenant Church in Albuquerque, where we focus on the Bible, faith, and life issues. We hope this podcast will be helpful to you on your faith journey. Now, here's our message. I tell you what, I like this rain. If you don't like rain, I can't do anything for you. Well, we're continuing into our series, Binge Worthy. And last week, we talked about um, the structure of the Bible and, and really the components of understanding the Bible. And I want you to know, my commitment to myself and to you as well is that we are, con- we are being rooted continually even further in the Scriptures. And the reason I say that is because, you know, <clears throat> we live in a world that is very, very hard to get away from thinking about yourself 100% of the time. And that tends to skew everything. It skews our relationships, and it skews our relationship with God. And it also affects our worldview, because somehow we feel that we need to ask the question continually, how does this affect me? And because of that, when we go to Scripture, we oftentimes miss out on the whole education of culture that God has for us. You know, everybody loves a good mystery, don't they? You know, you have those whodunit shows. I don't know. Women, do you like, like murder mysteries? Tell the truth. I know the truth about you. Anyway, <laughs> but... The, We like to find something that has puzzling events that somehow in the end is revealed and we say, aha, I thought that's what they were going to say or I couldn't see that coming, right? But the theme that we're going to pursue today is the ideal is that the Bible, okay, was written for us but not to us. The Bible was written for us but not us to us. And I will say that when we make statements like, well, the Bible is God's love story to you. Well, I don't know if you've read the whole Bible, but there's, <laughs> it's, there's a lot of action adventure in there, not necessarily a rom-com that much. There's a lot of history. There's a lot of cultural things that seem odd to us. And to say that is to oversimplify things, which is so easy to do. Let's start off with a question. We're going to go through a series of discussions at various verses, and I want to to sort of get your attention just a bit in hopes that you will begin to think differently about Scripture, because... If we believe that it is merely a book that is dropped out of heaven and it is the Word of God and it has answers for everything in life, even science, it, you know, whatever, it should answer everything, you are setting yourself and the Bible up for failure. It is unique. It is a record, a historical record, okay, of God dealing with human beings, specifically a group of people, and out of that group of people birthed a Messiah that went to the whole world, to the ends of the earth, and this gospel of God's goodness and salvation. But when we put parameters around it that are not necessarily real, 
but contrived, it breaks down logically and it breaks down personally. Question, does Jesus, and let's talk biblically, does Jesus want you to hate your parents according to Scripture? Yes. Some say yes. Others say no. What are you, crazy? Are you insane? Luke chapter 14, beginning in verse 26, says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father or mother, wife and children. Now, now those of you who are married, now don't take this too far. Uh, brothers or sisters, yes, even their own life. Such a person cannot be my disciple. Now, that, that deserves some investigation, doesn't it? And how many want to kind of know the answer to this? A few of you? Okay, good. You'll have to wait till the end of the service. Now, what about the verse where God says, honor your father and mother? Children, obey your parents, for this is pleasing to God. And we'll get to the answer to that later. And here's a principle. In my own Christian culture, there can be hindrances to my understanding of Scripture. Your own Christian culture can be a hindrance for you to understanding the Scripture fully in a more broad and deep sense of the word. Because all of our assumptions that we've talked about before last week, the mores of our own personal life and our own culture, our worldview, dictate to us how we understand things without even really thinking about it. And I'll give you an example. Revelation chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. And this is a lesson in thinking you know what you know. But I, I was always haunted by this as a child. To the angel of the church of Laodicea, write, these things are the amen and the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that they're neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were either one or the other, cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. If you want to know how to make Jesus throw up, Find out from the Laodiceans. Now, growing up, the, the main thrust of what I was told in this book, in this lesson, was that the Laodiceans <coughs> should be fervently hot in their faith for God, right? That they should be on fire for Christ. And that was the phrase that people used a lot. You need to, you know, that person is on fire for the Lord. That person is on fire for Christ. Well, what about being cold? Well, if you're cold, he can deal with you and pick you up and bring you up to a proper temperature, to being hot. But hot was the deal. And so, because you're not cold or you're hot, well, you get spit out of his mouth. And I was always wondering if I was really fervent enough in my faith. And so, it, it, it was a constant compulsion as a kid. So, I happened to travel to Turkey and what the area of the Bible would be designated as Asia Minor. And I hooked up with a tour and I made it out to the seven cities that were mentioned or the seven churches in the book of Revelation. 
And when we got out to Laodicea, at the time that I was there in the late 90s, um, the archaeological site really had not been fully developed. There were, you, you drive out to this old lot area and you find a, a hippodrome, which is kind of the horse arena out there, and some of the bath, part of the bathhouses. But it was really sort of left desolate, in my opinion. But as I was there, I had read some things about it before. I did my homework. But one of the things that was pointed out to us, because we spent the night at a town called Hierapolis, which was down the road about five miles. <clears throat> when we got there, we were told that there were two sources of water that the Laodiceans had. One came from eight miles up to the north, a town known as Colossae. We have a letter written to the Colossians, right? And they were known for their cold water. And part of the way that you would send water is you would put it on an aqueduct and it would travel. But because it traveled so far, that cold water never really ended up cold where they were. Hierapolis, on the other hand, is a natural spring. It stinks. It smells like sulfur. But uh, they would pipe in this water into the bathhouses, but it was never really hot. So the frustration of the people who lived there was with their water. So they immediately got what he was talking about. Nobody likes this stinky, brackish water that is warm. How many of you love a cup of good, warm water? <laughs> right? How many of you this morning took your coffee cup that you've been drinking out of for maybe a 10 minutes and put it in the microwave just to open it to, to get it hot again, right? And, and, and now it's really popular to drink iced coffee cold. But no one is saying, now Starbucks is serving lukewarm coffee, right? Not even coffee. I mean, I like lukewarm coffee because you can chug it. But I, I still... It, 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 this preferable to be one or the other. And Jesus is telling the Laodiceans, listen, the way that you're living right now makes me want to throw up. You're, it's lukewarm. And it was like saying that you come to somebody's house and a friend says, look, I know you made chicken enchiladas, but these chilies are mild. What? I served mild chilies? What must you think of me? Am I from Indiana? No. Sort of like you don't know what you're doing, right? And, and so they got that immediately, okay? But if we're only satisfied with just being told what the Scripture says, we'll never get, investigate and find out for ourselves, which is half the journey. All right, now here's the issue that they were dealing with, okay? Verse 17, you say, I'm rich, I've acquired wealth, and do not need a thing, but you don't realize that you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear so that you'll cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. 
Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. You see, what had happened is, is that they had received the gospel. But in many places, people find themselves as affluent. We can find that in America readily available to us. But what happens, he said, your, your commitment and your obligations are torn in the sense that one of you, Billy, I mean, you're so self-sufficient, you don't understand your own need for me. Jesus is very concerned about us needing and trusting in him. The issue is not so much wealth, but their attitude toward it, that I've got everything that I need. And, and, and the, the picture is, is that I also have added to who I am and what I have, I've added Jesus to this. I've added that. And Jesus says, that makes me want to throw up. It, it doesn't do anything. And, and it's because you don't understand your own condition. Now, that's a tough rebuke, but he says, I'm telling you that because I love you. I'm telling you that so that you can wake up because you need to. Now, here's another example of a passage that we're about to read that you've heard in very different ways. And I'm not saying it's wrong, but it doesn't fully represent the context of what he's saying. Look at verse 20. Here I am. I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. Okay? You've heard that. How many times have you heard that passage in connection with an altar call or someone calling saying, listen, Jesus is knocking at your door right now. And all you need to do is open the door and he will come in and he will be with you and he will save you. Okay? And that, I think, is a true sentiment of how God is on a person's heart and life, especially in a service or someone who's watching or listening to the service would say, wow, the Holy Spirit is impressing my heart and I know I need Jesus. And, and we say, he's at the door and ready. But the real context of this is about the church and the group of people in the church, not just individuals, but collectively, the us of the church. And he's saying, you know, you're blowing it. I'm standing outside. I'd love to come in and eat food with you and talk about it, this with you and help you get it straight. It's been stated that a human being, person, may not, will never fully reveal to you what's in their heart from the pen, although we have great records and books that we love. But they said the, the person argued this point, and the point was that they will really open up their heart at a table over a pint of ale, a cigar, or a good meal. Don't you find that true? That oftentimes when you're with friends around a table, it, you become effusive and you're comfortable and you share. And Jesus is talking to the church that's messing up. And he says, hey, I'm outside. Let me come in and we'll sit down and we'll have a meal and we'll make things right and we can work this out. Isn't that a beautiful message for the church today? 
Isn't that great when you think about your family and your life? That, that is enriching. It doesn't negate the use of, but that's not the only point. The point is, is for churches who need to change. All right, he goes on to say, to the one who is victorious, I'll get, give you the right, hand, right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. All right. Another problem that we have that keeps us away from getting to the truth is me. Not just our own culture, our own religious culture, but there's me in the process, okay? Romans chapter 28, verse, uh, chapter 8, verse 28 says, and we know that all things work all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purposes. Oftentimes, you'll see that flashed on a screen, right? You just did here. But you'll see it if, you, if you're watching social media at all. People will have those things up, little phrases like that, out of context. And when we look at them, we think, that's right. And the idea is usually this, God's going to turn this around for me. There's something bad going on, but God is going to make it good. God is going to turn it out to be something good for me, okay? And that's okay unless it doesn't turn out good for you. Then you have a problem. You have a dilemma. I have a problem because it didn't turn out good, God. What does that mean? Did I do something wrong? Did I not believe correctly? Are you not true? And others can read that and get, hear your explanation and say, well, that can't be true. That can't be right. You know, um, we have a dear family, Steve mentioned, who lost a, a mother. I mean, a wife lost her husband and two sons lost their dad. And we can cling to verses like this and, and at a time make a statement like, God's going to work this out for good. God has a better plan. And those statements are terrible. Because the truth is, that woman needs her husband, and those children need their dad. And we need to be able to make those statements true, to be able to say that and not prop the Bible up as if it needs protection. It doesn't. It's just because we're misreading it in a very simplistic way. So that's why Jesus tells us to grieve with those who grieve, weep with those who weep, rejoice with those who rejoice. Why? Because there are sad and hard things that happen in this life that deserve more compassion and understanding and care than some simplistic applying of Scripture. Now, let's look at this in context. Let's just pull out just a little bit from a verse and look at some of the verses around, and it'll give us a picture, a better picture of what he's talking about. Verses 18 through 28. I consider that our present sufferings, and they were suffering in the Roman Empire, are not worthy to be compared, we're <clears throat> worthy comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us that will be not yet. 
For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subject to frustration. Amen. Not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom of glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation's been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to this present time. Not only so, but we ourselves have the first fruits of the Spirit's groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption to sonship, the redemptions of the redemption of our bodies, for in this hope we are saved. But hope that is seen is not hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not have, we wait patiently. And then he gets to the point. And we know all things work, God works for good to those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. You see, the bigger picture here is not a simple, hey, God loves you. He's thinking about you all the time, every day, nonstop. And if something bad happens to you, he's going to turn it around and make it good. That sounds great, but actual human experience defies it. So what is he talking about? He says, the whole world's been waiting for God to make things right. We're under persecution. We're under trials. He said, it's okay. Because God, in His way, we have learned to trust Him, okay, that God, okay, is going to work for the good of those who He has chosen and He has called. It has, it does not exclude bad things. It does not exclude things that are rough. It does not exclude trials. It does not exclude death. But He's speaking to us as a group, to those. Who are called. Something interesting happened in church history. There's a lot of ups and downs, a lot of failures, a lot of victories. But prior to the printing press and the mass duplication of Scripture, the average person didn't have access to what we now have access to. And so they would go to the local church, Kirk, They would go to the fellowship, and what would they do? They would go there, and they would hear the Word of God together, okay? But then, once the printing became available, and the cost went down with time and ingenuity, people began to read the Scripture for themselves, which was fantastic. But that set us on a path, a long path, of quietly going over the Scriptures for ourselves, and in the process, applying it directly to ourselves, which is not bad. And we come to today in a society that is very consumed with me. Anybody have an Apple phone? No one to admit it. I do. What's it called? An iPhone. 
an iPhone. So many things are centered around me. And when we take Scripture and just apply it directly to ourselves immediately with our own cultural understandings, we may miss the broader and greater purpose that God has. Because none of us are fully in this by ourselves. That's why he says, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together. Well, I don't really need this. I can, I can get things on the radio. Yeah, when you listen on the radio, who are you applying it to? You're applying it to yourself. The Bible becomes about you all the time. And if we're not actively pursuing relationships within the community of believers, we will apt to believe and to interpret our Scripture based upon ourselves and ourselves only. Should it apply to us individually? Yes. But you can't have the me without the us. The two are together. You cannot tear them apart. You will not get to the point. Here's another example. Jeremiah 29, verse 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope for the future. How many of you have received that from a friend? Maybe you have a coffee mug with that on there, stationary. If, you ever, if you've graduated uh, high school and you were a part of a church, that was like on the verse that everybody gave you. God knows the plans for you at college to build you up and to, to form you. And it's not really a verse for that. And, and when someone's going through hard times, we'll say, hey, man, uh, God knows the plans for you. You're going to do great. He wants to prosper you. And uh, it's such a it can become just such a wonderful, encouraging verse for us unless we read it within its context. And the context is, <clears throat> well, Nebuchadnezzar and his people have sacked Jerusalem. Jehoiakim, the king, has been taken back to Babylon not before his children were killed in front of him and his eyes were poked out. That was the last thing he was able to see. All the dignitaries and the, the most influential people were taken out of the country, politically, socially, militarily, they were destroyed. And prior to this verse, he says, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to those I've carried into exile from Jerusalem into Babylon. Build houses, settle down, plant gardens, eat what they produce, marry and have sons and daughters, find wives for yourselves, and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there in exile in Babylon. Do not decrease. Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I've carried you into. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you will prosper. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams they encourage you to have, for they are prophesying lies to you in my name. I've not sent them, declares the Lord. This is what the Lord says. Get this. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise and bring you back to this place. You get what he's saying here? 
What's verse Jeremiah? Then we get Jeremiah uh, verse 11. For I know the plans for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you a hope in the future. Even when they were going into Babylon, this would be generations before people would come back. They would come back to a land that is desolated, but yet God would raise it up and build them up. But he says, I know the plans for you in the midst of trouble and trials. But if it's just a piece of scriptural candy that we hold on to, we make it into something that is magical thinking and worthless. See, that's deep. That is effective. That is powerful. Why? Well, what message would we have for the church today? Well, you may be going through hard times. You may be persecuted. You may be run out of your building. You may get canceled and lose your job. It's okay. I know what's going on. And I've got a plan. And I'm going to work this out for the good of the kingdom and for you. So you need to hold on and believe and trust in me in the midst of this. And don't believe the lies of people who will say, no, God doesn't want anything bad in your life. You're lying because you're delusional. Everybody knows that everybody goes through rough times. But if your thought is, is that God only wants good and perfect things for me that that are in my mind good for me, not in his mind, but in my mind what I estimate is good for me, then your faith is continually being attacked by yourself and your own belief system rather than being mature about it and realizing that God is in ultimate control. And yes, we may be in for some bumpy, bumpy waters. You know, the generation that preceded me, my generation, the boomers, I'm in the situation now where people look at me and go, hey, how's it going, boomer? I'm like, oh, just fine, loser. I mean, <clears throat> boomers are, are smart Alex. But we, we sort of threw everything off and said, just go for it. Go for yourself. It's all about you. And became so self-absorbed. And then what did we do? We had kids. And we became known as helicopter parents who were always hovering over them, making sure that they got everything that I didn't have. And then later on you found out, you should have been a lot harder on your kids. You should have let them struggle. This was not good. And so you have a generation of people that are expecting all of these wonderful things for them. Can I tell you a true story that may run right on the rim or the edge of something that's appropriate? Someone just say yes, just one of you. Okay, well, a few of you are good. It's your fault, not mine. I have a dear friend who related this story to me years ago when his kids were younger. And he said, two kids, you know, they're three years apart or so. The youngest asked the question <laughs> around the dinner table. Only a young kid could do this. But he said, when you go to the bathroom, not the simple one, but the more complicated one, he said, could you ever put that back in your body? 
I can tell you, I know the young man today is a very great kid. It didn't turn out to be a weirdo. He said, can, can, can you put that back into your body? And his sister gave the perfect cultural response. She said, well, you can do anything if you believe. <laughs> you can do anything if you believe. Why would you want to do it? I have no idea, but it's possible. But that sort of catches a whole generation, those of you who grew up with that, right? Everything, you know, the, the sparkly pony, just believe you can be anything. You can't be a sparkly pony. It's one of the trials of being a dad. So every other week, there was one of these sparkly ponies coming out. And, you know, just all of these disappointed kids who learned to overcome by believing in something. And, and it was just, I thought, oh, this is terrible. Until I found one of those um, neck pillows that you get on the plane after you travel a few times. Those are great for movie theaters if you have to go to kids' movies. <laughs> it's saying if you're a parent of young kids... Do yourself a favor. Now, the reason I bring this up is that we have to understand our culture and realize that we struggle because we're in an environment that's very self-centered. And that, that isn't to really put us down. It, it's more of us to be aware that when we approach Scripture, that could be a problem to really getting to the truth, Okay? Because the kingdom is so important. You see, it's, it's God's letter. It's not God's love letter to, to me. It's God's word to the world. It was written to those who were the original recipients, but it was also written for us to learn and to enjoy and learn and learn the rhythms of God's grace in his interactions with human beings. It's a record of God working in the world and His will for us and Jesus' plan of salvation. Okay. God wants us to grow up. Right? I happen to have a grandbaby and I am just lost in His gaze and everything about them. But human beings are very different than a lot of than most animals, uh, than the, the other living creatures that are here on the earth. And that, you know, a, a little animal will come out of the womb sometimes and they're able to run and to move because that's what's required in their environment. But the thing that, that really uses up most of the energy for the child in the early stages of development is the development of the brain. And so the arms don't work good. Nothing works good. If you leave a baby alone, chances are that they will die of exposure. You're afraid to, to leave them. If you set them up somewhere, they're going to fall over and hit that huge head of theirs, right? And I watched my grandson, he, he just, he loves all of these little gadgets and things. And, and at first when he starts moving his arms, it's like, oh, 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 like he's really doing something. And now he's getting to the point where he can grab something and he's starting to teeth and he grabs it and he's, oh, 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 you just like he's going to knock himself out. You're going to knock yourself out. And he oh, makes it in his mouth and, he, and, and he's just so excited about it. But it's really terrible to watch. 
Remember all of those of you who have kids? You saved all of their artwork from when they were little, right? I used to sell art for a living. That artwork that kids make when they're little is terrible. Horrible art. But we like it because it's sentimental. It's so precious to us to see their development, right? And And if we stay in God's Word and we allow ourselves to be educated in the process, what happens to us? We grow up. It may be fine to have, to understand the verses in a very simplistic way when you were a child and to understand that God loves you and and God will never leave you or forsake you. But you don't tell a little baby, but you're going to go through some really hard times, and it's going to be bad, and you're going to feel like giving up, but don't give up. Kid doesn't get that. Why? Because they've been raised in an environment with everybody paying attention to them all the time. It takes the rest of their life to try to get them out of themselves. And my plea to you in this process is to do yourself a favor. Do the body of Christ a favor and begin to delve in and be educated in a worldview that will stand against everything. Not to be just satisfied to hear someone else's explanation, but to believe it yourself. Does Jesus want you to hate your father and mother? Well, in Matthew chapter 10, I would suggest you read the whole thing. He goes on to say that he takes his disciples aside and he says, listen, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He was on the mission to Israel, to the Jewish people, to let them know that the Messiah was there, that the kingdom of heaven was at hand, that God was at hand and God was going to act and the time was short. In fact, if you don't know that, you will misread the Gospels entirely. If you immediately just apply everything to yourself, it doesn't work. You have to understand they were on a mission. He said, go first to our people, to these villages, but don't go into the Gentiles. That would be anachronistic. That means that that would come afterwards the cross as it was opened up to the whole world. But first we have a mission to our people and tell them that he's here and he is acting and he is moving. And if they reject him, he says, you go to a city, they reject you, move on, dust your feet off. If your parents, you know, are more important to you than the kingdom of God coming to you right now, then stick with it and stay with it. But those who love my people, those who listen to my voice, you come with me now because it's urgent. And it was urgent. It was so urgent that after he came into Jerusalem, he had completed all the things that the Messiah was supposed to do. And and we can do a whole study on this sometime if you'd really like to. But he comes into Jerusalem and he has a triumphal entry and he has the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God is appearing there. And finally, he's brought before the chief priest. And the chief priest said, are you the Messiah? 
Are you going to tear down the temple? Jesus was setting up a new temple, that he himself would be the temple. The Messiah would be the temple. And it was urgent for everybody living in Israel. And he calls out to Israel, Oh, you that killed the prophets, how I would have gathered you to myself as a mother hen gathers in her chicks. But alas, your place has been left desolate to you. And he looks at that priest who should have known the face of God, should have understood who was coming, but was now in no means, by any means, ready to hear God. And he looks at him, he says, I am in Greek, ego a me. Or Yahweh. God looked the leader, religious, social leader of that land in the face. And that man had an encounter with God and he didn't know it. See, that's kind of the scary, terrifying stuff about Scripture. He said, the Son of Man will come on a day that you don't expect it. What are we doing? We write books all the time. How many... Christians are going to get rich until the Lord comes from writing terrible prophecy books that never come true. I'm not saying that he's not coming. I'm saying he'll come at a time that you think that he's not. That's awesome. That's mysterious. That's inviting. We want the answers. Tell me how to do it. One, two, three. All right, good. Got it. Figure that out, move on to the next thing. As an adult, reject simplicity, embrace complexity. And there you will find the mystery. And there you will find that the Bible is very, very binge-worthy. So what do we do? Action items. Set aside time and look forward to spending that time in learning and investing and ultimately living it. Not, I need to do this because I said I would do it. No, look forward to it. Dig, investigate. Go with the Holy Spirit. Listen, pray, read. Write down things. Ask questions. Ask, ask, ask. Be satisfied with walking away and I don't know anything about this. I'm more confused now than before. Good. Fall asleep on it. The next day you'll have some pretty good ideas and it'll get better and better and better and better. But you'll find yourself on a journey that will take you beyond your current culture and all of the madness and insanity that is being foisted upon you daily. It's there. It's there. You guys got just a few more minutes? Can you last just a little bit? Okay. I'll have to take a whole session on this at another time, but after Jesus said all this to everyone, he said, look, all things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal them. And he was indicating that I'm going to reveal to you who I am. And this is what he said. Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart, 
and you'll find rest for your souls. You see, Jesus, when he looked out at the crowds, he saw the people and they were tired as having no shepherd. And he looked to his disciples and said, pray to the Lord of harvest. The harvest is plentiful. Pray to the Lord of harvest to send out people into this. Do you know that I heard in the news recently that they're having a hard time finding enough workers to get into the field down in Hatch and that they're afraid that a lot of the chili crop is going to rot in the field? That's, it, doesn't that terrify you? Like, oh, my God. Jesus says when he looks out at humanity, he says, pray. A lot of this is going to rot in the field. There are so many that need it. And they're tired. And, and the implication is, if you like your freedom, and you like doing it your way and how you do it and everything that you do, then keep going. Reject God. Just keep going. But if you're tired and you're burdened, tired and burdened and trying to do it yourself and live for yourself, he says, come on in. Come on in. And what, what does he use? The yoke. The yoke was a harness that was placed over an oxen, but also it, it could be used picturesque of a, of a horse and a bridle, okay? Horses on television running in a field look happy and wonderful. But if you've ever been around a horse that's been left to itself, that horse's hooves are messed up. Parasites. It's one of these animals that live in great symbiotic relationship with humans. They're, they're wonderful for human use, but they're also flourishing under a human being's care. And Jesus says to you and me and everybody else, you're tired of this way you're doing it out there? Okay, I'm going to put a bridle on you. I'm going to put a yoke on you. And that means that you're not in control anymore. And you can learn of me because I'm gentle. And I spent three days studying gentle and lowly. We'll get into that some other time. Are you willing to come under the yoke of Jesus? Are you willing to come under the yoke of his scripture and be taught and learn of him? He says, for my burden is not heavy. My burden is light. You can do it yourself. You can get, try to get God to bless your mess. Or you can surrender and give up to him and watch him make you flourish in his kingdom. You won't get it without this word. You won't. If you need prayer after service, I'm going to be right here. love to pray for you. If you've never called out to Christ and you haven't surrendered to him and you feel like you should today, I'm going to meet you here and I'll be glad to pray for you. Would you please stand? Father, I thank you for your words, this unique message. I thank you, Lord, that you're for us, but you're for us as we are under you. You are not for us in our rebellion and hurting ourselves. Lord, I pray that you would help us 
to remember this week to come in and learn of you, to live under your yoke, under your leadership, under your kingship, recognizing your character, that you're gentle and lowly. Lord, I pray that the words of your book would be once again enlivened in your church, that we would never, never be satisfied with a snack or some, some weird little bite of your word, but that we would drink deeply in the well of your soul. In Jesus' name, amen. This concludes today's message. We thank you so much for listening. We'd love for you to connect with us. You can do that at our website, nccabq.org. From there, you can submit any questions, feedback, and your prayer requests. nccabq.org is also where you can learn more about New Covenant Church. Subscribe to our podcast and newsletters, browse our online message archive, and even tune in and watch the stream of each weekly message. We hope you'll join us. So, until next time... May the Lord bless you and keep you. May God smile on you and gift you. May God look you full in the face and make you prosper. Have a great week.